Thanks for joining me. You're listening to the Semitic Jew Podcast. If you're listening for the first time, be sure to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast on your social media accounts, which helps distribute the gospel to more Negroes, Latinos, and Native Americans, and to ensure more Negro content is being distributed to wider audiences. I greatly appreciate you. In addition, our website, SemiticJew.org, is undergoing massive changes. So be on the lookout for some more impressive content. In this episode, we continue from where we left off at Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. Again, the next set of episodes will be essential to understanding why the global flood took place and who were the families involved in bringing about the wrath of God on all of creation. We pick up here at Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, and we're reading only verses 25 and 26 today. Let's get started. In every episode, I'm using a method or technique called exegesis, which means reading out of the text what is there. Most religions like modern Christianity, modern Judaism, and modern Islam, eisegete the text of scripture, not entirely, but generally speaking, not all inclusively, but very select groups within those constituents. So they usually come to conclusions which are not the author's intentions. This is the reason there are so many interpretations and confusions in the world today. Here at Semitic Jew, we do not interpret the scriptures through eisegesis. We only read what is there and what the author's intentions are so that we may gain understanding from that. Beginning in verse 25, this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 to 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This, even though this is just two verses, there's a lot that's happening here, and there's a lot to be encouraged from. The scriptures should give you hope, should give you encouragement, should bless your soul every time you open them. So I pray that you're not just reading them at night before you go to bed or uh, just passing the time through a symbol of devotion. I pray that you are actually pouring your heart out over the scriptures to to understand what the scriptures are saying, to understand the history of the world that we live in, and to understand where we are going in the process of time, because we are leading to a conclusion. Nevertheless, that's Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. Let's give some background, right? Now, Following the murder of Abel, Cain was punished by God, deemed a wanderer and vagabond. His descendants began to flourish just five generations removed from the murder brought about by their great-grandfather, Cain. To cite their accomplishments, 
Jabal manufactured tents, which means he developed or fathered the first textile industry. He organized the first cattle ranch even. The text reads, had cattle, which means he could have begun rounding them up to help the textile industry grow. His brother, Jubal, developed the first music industry through the usage of two musical instruments known as the lyre and pipe. Three generations removed, Tubal Cain fathered metallurgy as the first blacksmith mentioned in scripture. He particularly developed every artificer of brass and iron through structural and precise machines made from the environment in which they had begun to settle and master trades. All of this demonstrates Cain's descendants work exceptionally well with their hands, although they were being disobedient. Because remember, we learned earlier that God had commanded Cain to be a wanderer and a vagabond. But we see evidence of that through the building of tents, etc. Now, any honest logician will think to themselves after hearing all of that information, how are Cain and Cain's descendants flourishing despite the curse placed on Cain as head of his stock? This should tell us something about the world we live in from a practical standpoint. Elohim Yahweh, or in other words, the Lord God, did not curse their ability or their human ingenuity, or he did not take their human ingenuity from them when they were cursed. Cain and his descendants were able to logically process their environment like all humans and develop skills like all humans. The text does not account, obviously, for those of the human family who are born with defects, but we can infer that this is uh, that, as we've seen through the passage of time, that we are on a linear slope since the fall of man when it comes to birth defects, etc. But according to this passage here in chapter four of Genesis, Cain's descendants are flourishing. Cain was cursed from the ability to gain any production or prosperity from the earth on account of murdering Abel, which means food and agriculture were no longer available to him. He could not yield the fruit that was accessible from the earth, which is incredible to think about. Because remember, um, God cursed the ground and said, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth for you. That's what he told Adam and Eve, which means that you guys can plant and grow food, etc. But guess what? Thorns and thistles are going to come. But then Cain, he was cursed even more. He said the he said the ground will no longer yield its strength to you, meaning it ain't good. <laughs> now, I felt that I feel the need to give or excuse me, I felt the need to give all of this background information before we dive into 
these two verses, considering that we're only looking at two verses today. So we can so that we can stay current with what is happening here in the text. So that's just by way of introduction. Now, Genesis chapter four, verse 25, verse 25 says, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Adam knew his wife, which means they copulated, right? That's what you do in marriage. You copulate. The third son born to them was Seth. The name Seth is Hebrew for substitution or substituted because according to Eve, God had blessed them with a son to substitute in place of Abel, which is what she says in the text. Now, a word on Abel. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ, Jesus shall suffer persecution. Or in other words, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is what happened to Abel. Abel desired to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and he received persecution from his brother Cain. So all of us who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, who, who talk about keeping the commandments, who talk about faith in Christ, we're going to receive persecution from those who believe that you're saved only by faith, from those who believe that they are God's chosen people, but they don't have faith in Christ, and from other groups who, who want to discredit the deity of Christ, etc. We're going to receive persecution. So just be ready for that. And this honestly would be the behavior towards the chosen people of God. Notice they desire to live godly in Christ, which is a stark contrast to those who are posing as God's people on the earth today. And it's important to note here in verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. It's important to note here that the nomenclature of the Bible here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, is a process of scaffolding. If we go forward in the text, we have to go back in the text to understand why we are going forward. In Genesis chapter 1, specifically on day 3, we read about the trees, vegetation, and grass bearing seed according to their kind. This same logical progression applies to all birds. Birds reproduce after their own kind. Fish reproduce after their own kind. Livestock reproduce after their own kind, etc., etc. All animals and all humans reproduce after their own kind. This applies to all of God's living creatures, including plants. Okay, so keep that in mind. It is a seed that reproduces after its own kind. There is no deviation from this standard at all. There's no transitional fossils. There's none of that baloney of evolution and atheism. I'm not even going to get into it. It's just baloney is what it is. Pork, and we're supposed to abstain from that. So the seed, Eve, 
is referring to here is referring to the promise God had given to her earlier concerning the children and the enmity between the human family caused by their transgression. Again, which is the seed of the children of the devil and the seed of the children of God. Verse 26 says, and to Seth, to whom also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Seth's name means substitution. So Seth is replacing Abel as the progenitor of the promised nation and promised Messiah to come, who will bless the nation of Israelites, not Israeli. That's a state created by the Baflord Declaration. Israelites. And that needs to be a distinction. Okay, so we need to consider that there's great confusion in the earth over our identity. We have many sources now that tells us that the Negroes, Latinos, and Native Americans are actually Israelites that were taken into captivity according to Deuteronomy 28. Nevertheless, Seth brought forth a child through procreation and named his son Enos. Enosh or Enosh is Hebrew and it means mortal or the human race, right? We're all mortal. And it it also makes sense because they are beginning to understand that men are mortal, right? If men can be killed, men are mortal. If men can die, men are not eternal, at least in this world. So they're beginning to understand that. So Seth names his son after a word that means mortal. A name also used to identify the son of Adam um, is Enosh. And I'm reading from a dictionary which basically says that... Um, uh, Seth and his son or his children make up the genealogies leading from Noah, uh, Abraham, and then eventually Christ. Okay. So, um, and you can, you can easily trace that if you go to uh, uh, Christ's genealogy, whether in the book of Matthew or the gospel of Luke, you can find his genealogies and track um, the genealogies of Christ and how it leads back to Seth's line. Okay. It's interesting that also Eve gave the name to her son, Seth. So Eve named Seth, but Seth is said to have named his son. Now, you have men in society who feel like, well, I'm supposed to name our children. Or you have women in society where I'm saying, where they're like, well, I'm supposed to name our children. And who's in charge? Well, a godly couple, they will take turns. It's a beautiful thing. Now, this probably, this probably suggests that both husband and wife normally consulted with one another in deciding an appropriate name for their children. And it's not to say that, um, a righteous husband will automatically shun his wife's opinion for the name and choose his own. That's 
absolutely false. Um, a righteous man will take into consideration what his wife is saying, and they both should be in prayer over their child's name. That's what me and my wife did before we named our daughter Cohen. We decided, or excuse me, um, we prayed about it. We had other names. We considered it, and it was Cohen with a K that actually is a biblical name from a group of Levites who were, who were called the Kohenites. And then we later named our son Judah. And I was primarily the orchestra of doing that. We had names, we prayed about it, and eventually Judah was the outcome. So it's not necessarily a bad thing for a man to say, let me consider what my wife is saying or what the most high is saying, especially if she's a godly woman. Now, if she's a worldly woman, you got your hands full. So the last expression here in verse 26, it says, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 26 uses this, uses this expression to call upon the name or to call upon the name of the Lord, which normally implies a definite action of prayer and worship. It was evident after the birth of Seth that godly men and women initial, initiated formal public services of sacrifice, worship, and prayer, which basically replaced the earlier practice of God physically meeting with human beings. Because originally we saw God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God was walking with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, it was normal for God to be among them. But when sin came in, God could no longer be among them or no longer could meet with them because of sin, right? So here God is, I mean, excuse me, here now time has passed. Now, after the birth of Seth, men are gathering to worship God in a formal setting through sacrifice, through a blood sacrifice, through worship and prayer. The practice of individual prayer could also be deduced from this important phrase, right? Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. How do we do that? We do that through prayer. So it implies that God's personal presence was no longer regu regularly available to mortal men, right? We're mortal. Eventually, God will say, my spirit will not always strive with men because uh, men are mortal, right? So we need to understand that when we commune with God, we commune by calling upon the name of the Lord. In any case, uh, an act of faith and keeping God's commandments are basically implied here in the text. In later times, calling upon the name of the Lord became more defined in the text, accompanied by the building of an altar and providing the offering of a sacrifice. You can read that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, chapter 26, verse 25, and many other passages. Since Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, however, men, men obviously still need to keep God's commandments, not the sacrificial laws, and they need to also have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to, in order to come to God. This also teaches us that during this time, they called upon God's name. They didn't call upon God's title and say, Oh God of heaven, because we'll see eventually once we get to 
um, future passages that um, people deified trees, clouds, etc. But in particular, it says that they call upon the name of the Lord. And we know because the anglicized term of Lord was used, they, they took the name of God out of the text. But it, it clearly says that the people began to call upon the actual name of the Lord. They did not use the terms Jewish people use today. Jewish people do not call God, God. They call him Hashem. And Hashem means the name. So you're not really calling upon the name of the Lord. You're calling upon a phrase, which is absolutely ambiguous. And it's erroneous to say that we cannot use God's name, which they purport. Um, and we're not going to get into why they purport that, but it's absolutely false and erroneous. In fact, it's it's considered pious in their minds, but it's considered sacrilegious according to the text at this point. Christians also use the title God or Lord, and Muslims use the term Allah. Now, you're going to hear me use the term God and Lord, but I know God's name. Those are titles. Those are not uh, God's actual name. Okay, so understand that. So men begin to call upon the name of the Lord, not upon his title. We know he's almighty God, etc. The reason I'm addressing these so-called Abrahamic religions is because we need to distinguish between truth and error. The scripture tells us men began to call upon the name of God. So his name is not God. His name is not necessarily Jesus Christ either. Jesus, Jesus's name is Yahawashai or Yeshua. The father's name is Yahawah, or it's expressed through something called the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Now, I mentioned that in passing, so you need to understand what God's name is so that you can call upon him, right? Because if you call me and you call me by another name other than what I'm, what I should be called from, I'm not going to answer. But if you call me from my actual name, I will answer you. Same thing with God. So what's the application here from Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 and 26? I believe personally that this section teaches us that when the righteous are born in the earth, men and women will begin to call upon the name of the Most High. In fact, it says in the book of Proverbs that when the wicked are in rulership, the people mourn. But when the righteous are ruling, the people rejoice. So apply that today. Obviously, the people are mourning. Suicide is up. Broken homes are up. Poverty is up across the board. Who is ruling? I need not say because you already know. But when the righteous are ruling again, meaning when the Israelites and God's chosen people are on top again, we will rule righteously. Now, in addition to that, when men began to call upon the name of the Lord, the world proceeds to become, or excuse me, when men and women do not call upon the name of the Lord, the world proceeds to become more and more evil. It would not be the case if the righteous are in rulership. 
And like I said, if you look at if you look around the world, the world is run by evil men and women who are not the children of God, but are actually the children of the devil. And this doesn't necessarily mean that every single individual person in the high places are, but the vast majority are. Job 9.24 says, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. They cover the faces of the judges. Meaning the, peop- meaning the people in positions of power are not God's people. They censor or cancel the children of God because the children of God will judge righteously between what is good for the people and what is not good for the people according to God and according to God's word. Furthermore, I would like to end with this. The birth of Seth demonstrates the continued promise God had with the human family, in particular with Adam and Eve, to send the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent who brought about sin and death to the entire human family. As always, all praises, all honor, and all glory to the Most High. Shalom.